This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far, over land and sea. A little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. And then one day, one magic day he passed my way And though we spoke of many things Fools and kings This he said to me The greatest thing you ever learn Is just to love and be loved in return. To fully grasp the origins of the original Nature Boy is near impossible. It brings to mind Camus' saying about how you'll never fully understand the inner core of another person. There's something glowing and holy about everything that Eden Abez symbolizes to people, but getting down to his actual self is quite difficult. He was born in 1908 in Brooklyn, but given up into a Hebrew orphanage immediately until he was adopted by a family in Kansas. But his transformation from George McGrew to Eden Abez doesn't happen until he gets to Los Angeles, where he ironically ends up on Laurel Canyon Boulevard in 1941, where he stumbles into a version of an early health food store whose owners are following this obscure German lifestyle movement called Vondervogel. This anchors his kind of roaming spirit that has always been looking for something since he's been adopted. And I think for the first time, he really feels at home. This health food store has a strange following of nomads, really bizarre characters for their time, and they greatly influence Eden Abez. He fully joins their group, which is known as the Nature Boys. This group would probably be known today as the beginning of the American Back to the Earth movement, led by this German-born guy, Friedrich William Pester, and he is known as the Hermit of Palm Springs. 
this guy is a true character that has been described as the link between the 19th century German reformers and the flower children of the American 60s. This man is fully devoted to an obscure philosophical movement called Lebensreform, based on a natural way of life centered around organic farming, a vegetarian diet, and no drinking and no smoking. And through the kind of life revelation that Bill Pester embodied for Eden Abez, he penned this very Christ-like, nature-based song in tribute to his idol. from 1941 to 1947, Idnabez basically lives as this robed, sandaled, Jesus-styled figure in the hills of Hollywood, and he literally sleeps underneath the Hollywood sign. At this point in the 40s, there was really no reference point for this. And I think it's important to see that he is not, as many say, the inventor of the hippie movement but he's somebody who sincerely embodied this kind of attempt to live very barely, not even necessarily as an ascetic, but as someone who could perceive a more grand vision of life on Earth as a true minimalist. If you could put yourself back in the 40s, and you could see as the Industrial Revolution created the modern consumer culture right in front of your face, you may have wanted to explore other options too. I think this kind of religious calling cycles back and again, and he just happened to have been built as a true wanderer. Now this entire time that he's been living off the grid, he's been writing and dreaming of a new kind of music. But there's one song he's refining that's so accessible he ends up finding Johnny Mercer and this guy named Cowboy Jack Patton. And they advise him to bring it to Nat King Cole, a vocalist that can sing a song this huge. This particular song is not going to be able to be brought to people by anybody other than someone who can deal with this massive piece of poetry. It's almost like the Star Wars of loner songs. So Eden shuffles down to the Lincoln Theater in Los Angeles. And he approaches Nat King Cole's dressing room where he finds his manager. And he presents the idea of giving him this song. And the manager probably just looked at him and saw this crumpled piece of paper and just thought, why would we be interested in you? 
So feeling totally dejected in a kind of Hail Mary attempt, Eden passes the sheet music to Nat King Cole's personal chauffeur, and just like so many careers who have been saved by the secretary that pulled Jackson Brown's headshot out of the garbage, the chauffeur probably being Nat King Cole's actual friend, not his oppressive manager, passes it off. And when Cole gets home and puts the sheet music on the piano, he immediately recognizes something that's worthy of his audience. Something that people need to hear immediately. So now the wealthy famous person is suddenly in dire need of what is ostensibly a homeless man underneath the Hollywood sign. How do you find someone like that? Where do they go? Well, they search and search and eventually find him and just get his permission to arrange it into a masterpiece. And this song hits number one so hard that it stays there for two months and sells a million that year. There was a boy A very strange enchanted boy They say he wandered very far, very far Over land and sea A little shy And sad of But very wise was he And then one day A magic day he passed my way And while we spoke of many things Fools and kings This he said to me The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. When Nature Boy hits number one, immediately media characters seek out Eden to understand the strange man that lives up in the hills. And he's pushed out onto several TV shows and seems to treat it very calmly as though he's welcoming it just like someone delivering the paper. Like he's beyond it. And even though quite a bit of money starts to rush in, from everyone's account, 
it changes nothing about the way that he lives. They have to still go find him camping out up in the woods. So it's as though the song isn't even the point. It comes from a place that's so insanely unshakable. As though really what he wants to do is bring people a message from the distant world that he's from. On one of the TV shows, the host asks, What's your background? Where'd you come from? And the way he speaks is not like any other human being you've heard. It's extremely measured. Almost like he's speaking automatically. His answer is, I am a being of heaven and earth, of thunder and lightning, of rain and wind, of the galaxies, of the suns and the stars, and the void through which they travel. It's it's not a normal approach. So the more people kind of peered into his world, the more they wanted to know about him, and the more mysterious he inevitably became to them. Suddenly, he's at the height of a type of super fame where Doris Day, Frank Sinatra, and hundreds of singers are reaching to sing this song and ask him what he's going to write next. As if to balance out all this good luck, the universe swoops in and puts a strange twist on everything. Back in 1935, there was a Yiddish playwright named Herman Yablakov. He wrote a play called Paparasan that included a song called Be Still My Heart. And as soon as Nature Boy hits number one and obviously makes a lot of money, he comes out of the woodwork and sues Eden Abez for lifting his main melody, demands a hefty sum for his compensation, but also wants Eden to publicly admit that he's lifted this on purpose. So if Eden really is this simple, pure mountain man, you don't want to believe that he'd come down into the city and steal this melody. And there's a really good debate that Eden never would have been in New York to see this play or get this melody in his head in the first place. So you skim through the music, listening to the similarities, and at first, the play's music seems pretty weak. But then you get to this passage. So now you've become deflated because you read up on it and you find out that Eden paid off Yablakov for $25,000 out of court. But Eden refuses to admit that he stole it, saying that he heard the melody while he was deep in solitude up in the woods. So Yablakov accepts the money and still bristling from not being able to get Eden to publicly admit he's stolen the melody. He documents this betrayal in his own autobiography years later with a whole chapter dedicated to it. 
Now that would be the whole story, and Yabakov would have controlled the historical take on this melody, but somebody was sitting around one day listening to old Dvorak piano quintets and realized that Yabakov kind of stole the fuck out of this shit. So that was written in 1887 and rumored to be taken from old Czech folk music. So maybe Hermann Yabakov is actually the villain here because he probably knowingly lied and tried to destroy Yidnabez, which is quite fucked up. And in the spirit of admitting where you're taking something from, I would like to quote one Jeff Fulkins on YouTube who said, I imagine that if Abez's settlement is an admission of anything, it's that he was not attached to wealth accumulation and saw legal battles as a waste of his precious time. Yes, I think Jeff Fulkins has discovered the truth here, that either Eden Abez accidentally took it from things he had heard in folk music, or he applied his poem to a melody that he thought he had changed. Either way, you can see that $25,000 is this kind of magnanimous sharing of this wonderful luck that he's happened into, and he seems to rise up out of the situation completely unscathed. Although Eden is in demand, his disinterest and success in itself seems to guide the kind of wavering path of his life. What's really interesting about him is his dedication to his worldview, and then music and the success that comes from it seems to be a subcategory of his puritanical vision. This appears to buoy him up into a solid spiritual outlook throughout his life, so that no great thing can come and disappoint him. That being said, it wasn't a smooth ride in any way. His wife died of cancer and his son drowned and he had to wrestle with those things in the middle of his career and find some way to face the rest of his life without the two people he loved the most. Although he does work consistently and write songs for a lot of different singers, he seems to be in no hurry to push his own name on the world for having rocketed into America's foremost beatnik-style curiosity, he just remains dropped out and still lives on $3 a week. There are rumors that Mr. Natural, the character created by R. Crumb, could have been based on him. There's a bit in On the Road by Jack Kerouac where he mentions seeing this kind of robed Christ-like man walking through Palm Springs. He pops up in the strangest places. There's even an account that he signed on as a songwriter to help out with writing Ghost Riders in the Sky. 
I mean, he literally seems kind of everywhere and nowhere. A bolt of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky, for he saw the riders coming hard, and he heard their mournful cry. Ghost riders in the sky. Their faces gaunt, their eyes were blurred, and shirts all soaked with sweat. They're riding hard to catch that herd, but they ain't caught them yet. Cause they've got to ride forever on that range up in the sky. On horses snorting fire as they ride on near their tribe. Eden eventually surfaces in 1960 and delivers his sort of opus of exotica. And I think you should just go research it and make up your own mind about exactly how important he was in our century of music. Because some people really want to make him into a, a towering god. And a lot of people would probably just see him as one of the exotica composers, just one of many. But I think everybody can agree that he is one of the greatest American underdog stories of all time, really. And part of that is because as much as he may have just been another Exotica composer, nobody ever brought such pure, present spirituality to that genre or hardly any others. I mean, you would be hard-pressed to write a song better than Nature Boy. That's a heavy fucking piece of work. The world is far. The world is wide A man needs someone By his side The world is deep The world is high Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. All the loners on the show today are so inspiring that maybe for contrast, we need to showcase somebody relatively evil. I was a little kid in the 80s when the documentaries on TV at night were all about the 60s. So we were surrounded by this information. It was impossible to make it our own. As kids, we had hip hop, so many strains of punk on both sides of us being invented right in front of us, which, you know, you couldn't really top at the time. So at no point was I going to, you know, like fire up the old AM radio and start pumping the mamas and the papas. That just wasn't an available reality for me. And on the long list of bands I didn't understand, they had to be near the very top. So today we're trying to wrap our head around the bizarre potential genius of John Phillips. Back in the day as a kid, I think you saw a band like that and rightly assumed they were pretty much a plastic product, right? I mean, that was the difference between our generations with our parents. They genuinely actually liked Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, they really loved it. So most of the time, your bullshit detector as a kid was right on. You knew exactly what to avoid. But as you become older and become stranger yourself, you often find yourself mining through the damage, maybe seeing worth in some of the things that disturbed you, even if they were plastic, or wanting to know if inside the plasticness was something so sick that it's actually way more real than the things that you took for real at the time, which now to you sound kind of lifeless. So that's why you walk in on me and I'm listening to literally like the most god-awful Barry Manilow music or something because I fucking, I love how uncomfortable it makes me. I was watching old Michelle Phillips interviews and she talks about how John Phillips basically told them, listen, you can't wear makeup. No. You can't put up your hair. No. Every night, they would try to go on stage and look good. And he was like, you're not allowed to do that. That's part of the contract of this band. You have to look dumpy as fuck. And her and Mama Cass are just, like, totally confused. And then the music hits the audience. Their image hits the TV. And she literally is like, whoa, we're, like, huge. What's going on? And he's like, just listen to me. You are my product. And the product is the counterculture. Was he the true architect of the exploitation of naive flower children? Well, he put on the Monterey Pop Festival where Jimi Hendrix lights his guitar on fire and so many bands get created as a true phenomena he starts the fire and pushes it into the fucking forest. And to weave his business plan right into American culture, he wrote this fucking song.
so funny because that's like one of those songs that used to make you want to puke and it sounds kind of good now. Scott McKenzie was in a band called The Journeymen with John Phillips when they were trying to exploit the folk craze before the hippie explosion. Just hustling. McKenzie was from North Carolina. John Phillips is from South Carolina. They met in Virginia where John Phillips was going to military school originally and he says he was inspired by Marlon Brando to learn to be street tough because the school was so corrupt he was basically systematically beaten and watched in the shower by the nuns. And in a weird way, this little South Carolina boy started to harden and slowly plan for his street hustle comeuppance. So the turning point that got me interested in John Phillips was just a song I'd heard on a soundtrack for an Edie Sedgwick movie called Chow Manhattan which is, for its time, a kind of classic, accidental, psychedelic, not a masterpiece, but like a messy piece of shit that is bizarrely pretty and was shot only a couple months before she dropped dead of heroin addiction. And at that time, heroin was sweeping the counterculture on a level that was really unprecedented. As David Crosby once said, we thought that if the government told us not to do it, we literally needed to do it because they were liars. And we didn't trust our parents' understanding of safety anymore. We thought that all these good feelings were going to turn into something beautiful. So part of the study of this stuff is that kind of almost beautiful moment right before the flower just completely shrivels up and dies. And that is John Phillips in a nutshell. He's a hustler writing California Dreamin' just like Warren Beatty built the brothel in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He's a kind of totally amoral pioneer. And for all of the filth in his life, He's gonna build some sort of picture of paradise. I gotta find the beach house, babe, and the waves roll. Sand with your best friend, babe. Malibu people really know how to live. A castle in the sand and a lady, and the waves roll in. Keep it in mind. For some other time Malibu people really know how to live It took some time to find a crack in her defenses A hole in her lodge, you might say Keeping abreast of her Keeping things mended Baby, while the waves roll 
Malibu people off of Chow Manhattan and his first solo record called The Wolf King of LA in 1970. I was pulled in because I was listening from a distance like two rooms over and it really sounds exactly like Doug Yule had cut a solo record while they were doing Velvet Underground's Loaded and the producer had taken kind of that Transformer Lou Reed sound and just spread out a bunch of drugs on the table and just let the players play first take very natural. It's kind of like a dream zone for songwriters, like that moment of production. It's almost like the pinnacle of naturalism. And if you squint your eyes, his voice has this crazy similarity to Lou Reed, but with a little Doug Yule and almost like this cadence of Donovan that's really subtle which is a quite bitchin' combination. There's just nothing that feels better than a real street delivery over like that kind of cozy, warm, backroom shuffle. Your face when sleeping is sublime. And then you open John Phillips also miraculously becomes Andy Warhol's little darling, kind of right after Lou Reed was his little project. So it's an odd switch up, but John Phillips' third wife, Genevieve Waite, was kind of in Andy's crew. Essentially, John Phillips is able to coast for the rest of his life off of the kind of fame he achieved with the Monterey Pop Festival and the Mamas and the Papas' ubiquity. And I think if you had a bullet point presentation of all of his transgressions, this guy has achieved as much wreckage and maybe done as much damage as Aleister Crawley. The stories are too varied to catalog, but just off the top of my head, back in 63, drinking tequila one night in a hotel room, supposedly with Judy Collins, Stephen Stills, and Neil Young, he rattled off a song that he promptly forgot and became one of Judy Collins' big songs and then one of the Grateful Dead's live staples, the song called Me and My Uncle. He didn't even know he wrote it. He never knew he wrote it. He only understood that he wrote it when he started getting royalty checks years later and they came so consistently that he was like, what is this? During his marriage to Michelle Phillips, she starts having an affair with Roman Polanski, so for some reason he starts sleeping with Mia Farrow, who is a star of Rosemary's Baby, and he does this regularly at Frank Sinatra's house, which is an extremely dangerous thing to do knowing his mafia connections. So when Sharon Tate gets massacred, he was supposed to be at that party, and the first thing Roman Polanski does is he calls John Phillips and says, why did you do it? Thinking it's payback for having slept with John Phillips' wife. So clearly Phillips' aura is fucking dark. At the time, he's just wallowing in debt from having spent so much money every day on drugs. There are bowls of cocaine in every room, which his kids basically take part in. Because since he was kicked out of every school he had ever been in, they should be raised with no rules above them. 
Meanwhile, Dad has the best session players in the living room cutting satanic anthems. Run to the convent, run to repent, tell Father Superior, I'm sorry I'm bent, but the Pope says the devil's on the loose in Southern California. He found a new place to roost, I think he landed on you. He's got a see-through on the crap book, he's got a two-to-one All right, I've made a very large gin drink, and now we're going to get into the difficult part. John Phillips was never a hero in the sense of these other guys on the podcast. His music came from a dank and seedy place, and his life essentially descended into that zone. So it'd be kind of disgusting to appear to celebrate this music and not approach his incest accusations from his own daughter, partially because Mackenzie Phillips' account should be supported as she was attacked by some of her family for coming into the public arena with this information. This is the study of what came from the dark side of the 60s in its most unglorified form, and you really can't have that music without the consequences of the behavior of these people, so it seems super gross to celebrate the music without accepting or grappling with the world in which it was sort of knee-deep. You have to take away from this what kind of people succeed in bizarre nexus points of chaos, what kind of people rise up and are able to exploit large groups of people with relatively simple devices. That study is fascinating to me, and if you really want to get something out of this, I think you should look at the fact that he is known widely as someone who is really horrible and controlling, but at the same time, by the people around him in his family, he's spoken of with this kind of reverence. His own autobiography is called Papa John. You start to learn as you study him that someone who can influence and engender deep love feelings can get much more leeway with his potential victim. This is about as dark as the 60s got. John Phillips was very close with the Rolling Stones, having always been an icon when they came up, and then as his life kind of fell into drug addiction, he had something deeply in common with Keith Richards, and Mick Jagger and Keith decided to produce his big comeback record and sign him as the first artist to their label. While they're flirting, the classic backdoor rumor basically is that John Phillips came through and slept with Mick Jagger's wife, and as a kind of like pat on the back weird fucking thing, supposedly Mick Jagger slept with John Phillips' daughter, who's the one that's just feeding off of the coke bowls and is running wild. 
Obviously, the family has always wanted to suppress a lot of this information, but oddly, they produce a song together called She's Just 14 about Mackenzie Phillips, his daughter, and it just spells out this strange relationship they have line by line. It is unlike anything I've heard. She's just 14 Little movie star queen She hasn't seen She's been in the limousine car She dated pop stars A rainbow hair Said I know But she always said I'm just a sexy trash kid but she's just a little girl Who think like a man Sometimes the dad is small Sometimes the cheese is rough Sometimes she's gentle And sometimes mac and cheese She's tough, but she's a Incredibly bizarre, and yet they felt that was uh, an appropriate tribute. These are the things nobody could have seen coming back in the summer of love. Back when I would go to my homeless shelter job, I would walk in, and it would always be chore time at 8 a.m., and all the guys at the homeless shelter would have to come over to the TV. The TV kind of held everybody's focus, and as I walked in, I'd always see some bit of pop culture. I think I found out about, like, 9-11 on that TV, or, like, I would see epic things on that TV that kind of would scar me as I walked in the shelter. And I believe one of the things I saw was when Mackenzie Phillips went on Oprah in 2009. Oprah got a lot of flack for that interview because she was pretty sensationalist about these incest accusations. And what Mackenzie Phillips really said in her book was that her and her dad were heroin addicts and had gone to the deepest, darkest place you can go where day in and day out they were completely unconscious and he would have sex with her and in her mind she felt they were in a relationship and she was deeply ashamed about that then the book comes out and therapists and feminists reach out to her and tell her you were not responsible for that and so during the interview she's still kind of figuring it out so it's a pretty intense time when you look back at those interviews and she's starting to educate herself about what happened with her dad but one part that really disturbed me is that michelle phillips came out to combat mackenzie phillips 
and Michelle wasn't her mother, but presumably wanted to protect the Mamas and Papas brand, and she came to John Phillips's sort of posthumous defense and said there's no way that could have ever happened. She didn't have any evidence, but she wanted to make sure people didn't believe Mackenzie Phillips. And that seemed extremely dark to me, that this bit of 50s family culture life, when repression was king, would come back out of the woodwork to try to quash the darkness of the 60s And the fact that she was so concerned about her fucking brand was so demonic to me. And Michelle also had this bizarre squabble with the other wives about who heard John's last dying words. She insists the last conversation that he had was with her, where she whispered to him, You made me the woman I am. And when you look back... She was still basically a child when they got together and he told her what to do on the mamas and the papas. So it all comes full circle in the most insidious, fucked way. And I'm totally convinced nobody wants to hear any more of his fucking music now. So let's move on to our last two saviors. People who have redeeming lives with great qualities and will now further distance us from the horrible thing I just forced on you. zigzagging up to the northeast of England where in 1970 a young man named Alan Hall appeared on the scene with his band Lindisfarne. Now most Americans will only really know this band because their records are like 25 cents in the used bins and in that sense they're thought of as a kind of discarded band. But what's beautiful about this band is that at their core They have this guy, Alan Hall, who really just marched out into the world after high school with his acoustic guitar and took John Lennon as a textbook example of a hero and thought, why can't you do that? Whereas the rest of the world saw the Beatles as this kind of impossible glamorous thing, he was like, no, they're just like me. And he set out with a very intense purpose to make socialist music with a guitar just like someone like Woody Guthrie, but to represent where he was from, which was Newcastle upon Tyne. And up against Moondog or Eden Abez, he may seem totally ordinary, but that's part of his amazing charm, is that this guy writes things so insanely plain something that transcends backgrounds and shows you that pain does have a kind of frequency he can reduce me to near tears just with basic melodies it's a very strange talent and you already know it because i use him on this podcast regularly one more bottle of wine 
opened up to the name of love in the nick of time. Drunk to the future of mankind. For in truth we are the blind leading the blind. Let's have another drink for God's sake. Those on the brink of a bad break. Let's have another drink for God's sake. Something in the bottom of that song makes my actual guts kind of twist. And I don't know if that's a good thing, but fuck. It feels like actual pain. It doesn't feel like it's been processed for me. I read that one of his bandmates said something to the effect that he had two modes in song. That ostensibly he was fighting for the common man for some sense of justice in the world. And then yet he had a wild side that really needed to party and decompress. So it was pretty much either political songs like burn down the government or just let's get fucked up and rage. Which, you know makes sense it's just he was an extreme case in that song one more bottle of wine you can hear that combination of let's have another drink but we are fucked and going back to the very first song on their first record he's throwing down what's wrong with the world but he's making it so the entire crowd can lose it get fucked and dance along with him Me licking lips with tongues of fire, a host of golden demons screaming lust and beast desire. And when it seemed for certain that the screams could get no higher, I heard a voice above the rest screaming, You're a liar. But it's all Social commentary is so subtle that you may miss it if you're not listening closely. And I think that's one reason why people don't talk about Alan Hall that much is that it's a bit too subtle for their ears. They need someone kind of outrageous. And really, it's as though he's too much of the everyman. Like people don't actually want to hear what the everyman has to say. They have to have some glittered up ridiculous cartoon of a person to actually believe in them, which is really fucked up and backwards. But I think Alan Hall had a struggle with his sort of commonness because I don't think he was a very ordinary guy, yet he was fighting for the lower classes. But he himself had no great loyalty to tradition. 
He wants to reform society and protect the vulnerable, so he feels an obligation to make people's music, which is often a kind of party music in that day and age while drinking. So weirdly, I think that explains why their records are a little watered down and his great songs have to be sort of dove in for and dug out, which is a little too much work for most people, and that's fine, I understand. But down inside every Lindisfarne album, you're gonna find one of his hidden bangers. City streets, I see your lies, I will not play your game. It's kind of a barn burner of a verse, man. You tried to hypnotize me, but I seed right through your game. <laughs> what the fuck? <clears throat> Maybe Alan Hall is the working man's hero that John Lennon was talking about. In fact, he was so accustomed to his kind of everyday drinking holes in Newcastle-upon-Tyne that he hated to travel. And in 1971, when Fog on the Time became the number one hit in the UK, he was obligated to start satisfying big audiences and glad-handing, and he just didn't really feel up to it, so he broke the band up. And that's when his solo career really digs in and gets dark. You can drive me mad you make mother very sad And she may be even cry She may be shed a tear When she sees my coffin go that's the frequency you're after it's pretty easy to go out and try to find pipe dream or squire his first two solo records which kind of epitomize his angsty phase where i believe he's working at a mental institution and really deciding that he needed to take john lennon's cue with songs like mother and sort of perform more of a jungian therapy making his music much more personal, less of a party device in general, and more of like a Dostoevskian approach. Some sort of human investigation put to melody. 
Now, Lindisfarne eventually worked their shit out and became basically Newcastle's premier drinking party band again and played something like 132 Christmas gatherings at the Newcastle City Hall. I think as his solo records probably didn't quite take, you know, he didn't become Paul Simon. And Lindisfarne was really limited to being regional superstars. They embraced that and became kind of like the Fairport Convention of their little corner of the island. And I'd say they lived a pretty decent life as professional musicians until 95 when Alan Hall just suddenly dropped dead. He literally didn't even make it to the hospital. It was just a sudden heart attack that no one saw coming and it left the band to sort of scramble and put themselves back together. So if you're ever in that part of the world, go pour out a drink for sweet Alan Hall and go find those dudes, and they still play to this day, to carry on his legacy. two and a half hours south of Allen Hall was an entirely different kind of British genius working on his life statement. In 1971, when Lindisfarne hit number one on the charts with Fog on the Tyne, Basil Kirchen was slaving away on old tape machines in his house, working on a new way to stretch sound into malleable beds you could compose with. A process that would quickly be noticed by Brian Eno, who would then run with that method and create what we now call ambient music. ¶¶ 
I'm referring to Basil Kirchhen's 1971 work, Worlds Within Worlds, which still stands tall as probably one of the harder to listen to records for normal listeners, people who aren't, you know, waking up and listening to like massively slowed down parakeet chirps with horns blaring atonally over them. So this isn't going to be the new age music that your mom was listening to when you were little. This is like walking in on a hardcore scientist. He makes Joe Meek seem kind of uh, like Mr. Rogers. pretty much what most people would call what you put on if you want to clear the room. It reminds me of this time, I think it's the only time I got fired technically as a DJ because I was playing like Tangerine Dream and kind of like a Williamsburg like drinking German beer house thing. I don't even know what that is or like what kind of people go to that. I was a first time visitor but the staff just kept coming over to me with these weird, insincere smiles and being like, can you play, like, beer house music? And I I couldn't think of a fucking thing to say. I was like, what the fuck is that? What is beer house music? Clearly, they don't mean, like, German drinking music from, like, the 40s. But that's all they could say. I say, what, what is that? Tell me what that is. Like, just give me a, a, an emotion or something. Like, just tell me what to play. And they're like, dude, I don't know. Just, like, make it feel like a fucking, like, beer house in here, bro. My only point is that it takes such a small push to break the tenuous cord of idiots listening to other people babble, like, over Huey Lewis. So what we can discern from Worlds Within Worlds that's playing beneath me now is that Basil Kirchhen was truly in his own realm. I don't mean this in a dramatic sense. I mean that he was a king of selfish music in the sense that he was carving out a place to look and explore that had no need for acknowledging markets or the public themselves. I mean, this is really something being made within its own sphere. In the very beginning, Basil Kirchhen's ambitions were much more normalized and built around his father's big band music. He started drumming for his father in 1941 when he was only 13. This is during World War II, so his father, to protect him, had set him up a practice room in this underground railway station. And he would focus on his drum set for eight hours a day while actual bombs constantly exploded over his head. It seems like everywhere he went in his life, some sort of tragedy or crisis sort of redirects him so that he ends up focusing on what his true personal needs are in music, and he veers away from commercialism every time, becoming more and more himself. 
The first crisis happens when his father gets in a really bad car accident in 1954. That leaves Basil on his own to lead the band, which he realizes he wasn't born to do. His fate is really to compose music on his own. So in 57, he goes off to India, lives near the Ganges River, and starts opening his mind. And like the true original thinker that he is, precludes the hippie drug insight and understands psychedelic music on a deeper, more instinctual level, and really starting to reconsider the kind of music he's going to make when he gets home. Then in 1967, the Arts Council of Great Britain awards him a grant to get his own tape recorder that he starts using to collect ambient sound. That begins the shift where he sees sonic composition as a kind of early sound design. And that attitude shift is what informed Brian Eno, opening up a new way of looking at song composition by stretching sound into almost granular beds that can be warped and played over. I'm greatly simplifying his life, but in a way, once he discovered this methodology, I think he drifted away from normal existence with other people, finding an entire universe with his Swiss wife in their tiny home, just recording privately. And by the late 70s, he never had a release again. I've read that nobody in the surrounding city had any idea who he was for a good 20 years, and he just never mentioned it. I've read an interview with one guy who had come to find him on a pilgrimage, and he had lost his eye from battling cancer and actually had a hole in his fucking head. And he came to the door, business as usual, was working on his recordings and sat down and spoke for a while and then needed to go back to work and dude like his music he'd found the thing that made sense to him 
cut everything else out and stayed in that zone. I want to thank everybody for listening this season. It's been really nice to get people's feedback. And I'm not going to wait as long to come back next time. I think I took two years off because all the records we were making were delayed in the mixing because I was mixing this podcast. Well, now I've turned them all in and I have like five records waiting to come out. And the vinyl crisis is fucking that up. So I'm going to try to start back in on this sooner. When I can't sleep, moving to Portland too has become something that's very clear in my mind. And actually dives into the fucked up circumstances around Grails and Holy Sons starting to play. And everything I learned from that kind of going to an actual real life school really excited to get into some new ideas about how to a b the birth of punk against what's going on now some sort of back and forth orgasm between really raw uninhibited punk versus the fucked up sort of post vaporwave that we see now and try to smash them into each other and see what they sound like so I'm coming back as soon as I possibly can. I don't know when that is, but we're going to go out on some Basil Kirchen. An easy place to start is a record called Basil Kirchen is My Friend, put together by Trunk Records. But we're going out on the soundtrack he did for I Start Counting. Changing time Tomorrow 